Hi, I'm Raymond from Insert Quest here. My pronouns today are he, him. Uh, this is part one of a two-part interview series with the creators of Hardwired Island, a new uh, RPG that is up on Kickstarter at the moment. Um, today, in part one, we're going to be talking to Paul Matevich, uh, otherwise known as Etten. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you on the show again, uh, Etten. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, all right. Hey, um, I'm, Ed. <clears throat> I'm Etten. Uh, my pronouns are he and him. Uh, you might know me from Breakfast Cult or Retro Causality, which are the last two RPGs that I did. Yeah, and um, I'm making Hardwired Island right now. Excellent. Uh, so we had you on a while ago to talk kind of more generally about Yeah, we your... talked about um, Cthulhu Tech. Yes, we talked about Cthulhu Tech and the fact that if you do a print version of a game, you're meant to send a copy of it to uh, to the uh, Australian Archives. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, I should do that for Retro Causality, actually. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, we talked about Breakfast Cult and uh, Retro Causality a little bit more. More about Breakfast Cult, though, at the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, so... We figured when we were talk- planning out these interviews together, uh, we figured that it would make sense for us to talk to you first and do a short interview, and then we can talk to your uh, collaborator uh, on Hardwood Island in a bit of a longer interview uh, yeah. next week. So I guess to begin with, I wanted to talk about how did you, how did you two first get started collaborating together? Um, it was a while ago now, actually. Uh, basically, Freya and I have been planning to do something for a while. Um, originally, I f- believe we were going to do like an OSR game of some kind, maybe. But that kept getting shelved or like we changed our mind on what we wanted to do a bit. And then eventually it just kind of turned into Hardwired Island. And we decided to actually like put some work into it. And we have an actual game now. Excellent. And so how did you and Freya sort of first get involved collaborating together? Uh, it, was, it wasn't anything like really complex. It was just um, one of us said to the other, hey, we should make a game together. And then the other one said, okay. <laughs> I, I'm working on like multiple collaborative projects right now. And that's how all of them have started. Nice. Basically. We're sort of, oh, hey, you, you seem cool. Let's work on this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so... I guess we should start out by talking about first what Hardwired Island is and then what your, and then we'll go into some specifics about what you have been bringing to the project. So can you tell us in your words what Hardwired Island is? All right. um, It's a retro future cyberpunk role-playing game. It is set in a space station orbiting Earth called Grand Cross in the distant future of um, 2020. I thought you were going to say 2002. No, it's 2020. I love saying that. I mean, I mean, the distant future 2020 is also like quite good because it's like next year. Yeah, it's, it's like because, six um, months away. Yeah, pretty much. It's it's because a lot of our influences are from the 90s, like Ghost in the Shell, pardon me, uh, Police Notes, Bubblegum Crisis, technically. And a lot of them set their distant future in like 2020 or 2030, thereabouts. Yeah, wow. So that's it's a- like, hey, let's release a game in 2020 that's set in 2020. That's not even that distant a future to the 90s as well, which is wild. A, a, lot, of, a lot of science fiction does that, actually. Like, 
sci-fi tends to assume that we're only like 20 decades away from whatever nascent technology is all the rage becoming just every, a part of everyday life. I wonder if that has to do with the phenomenon of, uh, of fusion scientists saying we're on, always only a decade away from fusion power being possible. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I think fusion, fusion power has been a decade away for like the last 60 years. <laughs> I think people just like to imagine that's going to happen in general. Like um, you see it happen in AI a lot too, where people believe that we're less than a decade away from some kind of like seed intelligence yeah. or whatever. And it's not going to happen. Dude. It's, it's not it's like Elon Musk has been saying that shit for like a decade now, I think, for example. Yeah. I generally don't trust people that are terrified of AI about how long AI is away. Cause I'm like, I'm not terrified of AI cause oh. I'm not a computer racist. Also, um, I could make this whole interview about how that's not going to happen the way they think it will. <laughs> Look, I mean, I think that would be a different, uh, interview. Um, so I guess yeah, let's much. talk about what, parts of Hardwired Island you're working on. So you said to me that Freya is responsible for a lot of the mechanic stuff and you've been doing a lot of the setting material. Uh, yeah, that's basically how we've been doing it. Um, I wrote, I wrote the setting, like the basic stuff's mine. Most of the details are mine. Um, Freya has been adding things here and there because you know, why not? The more people yeah. you have working on it, the better it is. Cause it's still a collaboration. Yeah. So does the way that has, how has that been working? Has it been, you've written out like a bunch of setting stuff and then you've been like turned to Freya or message Freya, I suppose, because of the time zone differences. I'm like, is this good? <laughs> Do you like this? Is there any part of it you don't like? What kind of, how does your collaboration work in regards to your delegation? I suppose. Um, it, that sounds like more organization than we have at the moment, to be honest. Excellent. Like, um, okay. What, probably what it's like is, um, do you know Douglas Adams? I am familiar with Douglas Adams work. Okay. So there is an anecdote from, I believe one of his editors where basically what would happen is she'd go to his house and he'd show up with like a bunch of papers and be like, Hey, what do you make of this? And he just dump a bunch of stuff in front of her and walk off up the stairs and then while she read it, he just like write some more stuff and come back down and be like, Hey, check this out. And it will just keep going. Wow. I just like write a bunch of stuff and then I dump it on Freya and be like, Hey, what do you make of that? And then. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Also, wow. Okay. <laughs> sometimes she, she sends back like her thoughts. Sometimes she'll just suggest stuff and I'll write it in. Sometimes uh, she's written a couple of things as well. I think there's a section on cybernetics that's going to be in, in the final version that she basically wrote. Cool. Okay. Well, that is an interesting way to do the collaboration, I suppose. But if that's what's been working for you, it seems to be, I can remember a few months ago, uh, seeing on Twitter that you, you sending out like a tweet or something saying like, I need like a generic image of a, of like a, of like a, I can't remember the exact words you used, but you basically were asking for a generic image of an O'Neill cylinder. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was like the first I heard of this game, I'm pretty sure. And then like a few more tweets every now, every couple of weeks being like, oh, the cyberpunk game I'm working on is going great. Yeah, um, <laughs> we, we've got a couple of art pieces commissioned already. One of them is just a big high-level piece of the inside of the cylinder. Mm -hmm. So we've been, we've been trying to figure out what that actually looks like. 
there's not a lot of art reference. Um, most of the art reference I found for O'Neill cylinders is like concept art from the seventies or the eighties when it was mostly like a scientific thought experiment. I mean, I, I, I do much love the early, uh, O'Neill cylinder art. Um, and it is why I got very annoyed at the end of, uh, interstellar when they have an O'Neill cylinder that is too thin. It's too narrow. It's not, it doesn't have a large enough diameter. <laughs> it's got, it's an O'Neill cylinder with like a hundred meter diameter. And I'm like, wow. Oh, the, ma- the math on that was a pain to work out by the way. Oh yeah, for sure. I yeah. mean, thankfully you'd be following in some high level mathematicians footsteps, but yeah, like it, the smaller oh. the O'Neill cylinder is, the <laughs> stupidly faster you have to spin it in order for it to be useful so a lot of the info have you have you seen the image from the preview that's got like the cylinders dimensions and all that stuff i think so it's on the it's on the Uh, so the most useful source i found for the O'Neill cylinder turned out to be um a post that someone had written about the problems with the O'Neill cylinders in i think macros or gundam one of them like Uh... yeah there are O'Neill cylinders in uh, Gundam. It makes that would make sense. Yeah, it was it was basically just overanalyzing some like anime or O'Neill cylinder, and like you know, this it's helpful. I mean, it's a bit weird, but you know. Yeah, no, it, for it, sure. Uh, and for those that aren't aware, uh, do you mind briefly explaining what an O'Neill cylinder is? Ah, uh, yeah, sure. Okay, so basically, do you know? Uh, have you ever had like a ball on a string and then you like you swing the string around and, and the ball spins around really quickly? Yes. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and, it, and it's, and it's pulled <laughs> because you're spinning it. The ball is sort of pulled to the full length of the string. And so the string stays taut. So basically it's just a really big cylinder and you just spin it around fast enough. I think it's like one rotation every, every two minutes or something, at least at the size we were going with. But basically um, when you spin it fast enough, it, it more or, more or less has like working gravity on the inside, and then on the inside you fill it with air, and then you build houses, houses, and all that kind of stuff. So it's sort of like a much smaller but longer Halo ring. If anyone's played Halo, yeah, basically. Um, yeah, cool. And then you you, get, you put some windows down the sides, and then you get like some solar panels that reflect light into the cylinder. Um, he technically cheated a little bit. I think the original idea was supposed to be two O'Neill cylinders that were connected to each other because there's basically a whole bunch of stuff going on about like trying to keep the plate thing connected to the sun. So not connected, I'm facing the sun. Yes. And it's a lot easier if you just have two counter-rotating cylinders, but we just have one because it looks nicer. If you have two counter-rotating cylinders, it's kind of less work to spin them. Yeah, because you don't have to keep adjusting the cylinder to keep it pointed the right way. They just do it for you basically. Yeah. Because they're sort of, because they're spinning counter to each other. It kind of balances is my understanding. Yeah. I mean, this isn't really like super relevant during play, but it's still, you know, fun to work out. Interesting things to think about. So why, why did you decide to set your game in this, in, in, in a, in a cylinder habitat? And uh, what were some of the, what are some of the story conceits that made that, uh, a good fit for you? Well, part of it was, uh, I, I guess I wanted to do something set in space to start. Like I wanted to set something in the distant future of 2020 mm-hmm. and then have it be like way beyond what we've actually got in 2020. And yep. also having it, having it set in a cylinder in space 
makes it a bit more interesting because like it's a crowded space you can't really well you can leave but it's harder because you can't exactly just like drive out of the city can you yeah that kind of stuff and it just adds a lot of little interesting touches to the setting i think a part of it was also just i kind of like doing o'neill cylinders uh, i i have a soft run, spot for them too yeah i used to run an eclipse phase game that was set in one and that's that partly inspired this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i imagine too in a lot of ways you're kind of following in the tradition of a lot of RPGs where rather than being here's this big expansive world, it's no, we're going to play in this city. So there's, there's a bunch of D and D games that have done that D and D adventures and settings. And the one that springs to mind immediately is um, I think it's called Ptolemyos or something like that. Some, some it's uh, some nonsense by uh, Monty Cook. Tolis. Tolis. That's it. Yes. Tolis with a P. Uh, that one was actually quite yeah. That one I thought was interesting. That's the one where like when you die, your ghost just goes to like a cave underground and then it walks back, basically, isn't it? I think so. It's got a vaguely Christian um, religious structure in it and a weird wizard spire and uh, undercity. Or uh, you know, we've also got like all the a lot of the blades in the dark and other forged in the dark games like blades in the dark primarily is about you're playing in this city and there's a bunch of expansions yeah. for play in this other city. And then you also have a, um, a lot of the follow-ups to that game are also set in uh, specific locales. So you have um, blades against oh. darkness, which is kind of blood borny. I just um, realized um, I was thinking of, Ghost Walk, wasn't I? I think maybe. I'm not that yeah. familiar. But either anyway. way, there's a lot of this tradition within the RPG community of playing in a specific city. And I tend to find that playing in a specific locale rather than playing in the entire world is a lot more interesting. I mean, yeah. when I've run Eclipse Phase stuff, it's been like, you know, pick a city on one of these planets and we'll play in that because you have, you have a lot more room to become familiar with a space rather than perhaps what some people might envision the whole wandering campaign thing. Yeah. Like, um, have you read Frag Eternum? I have not. Uh, it's, it's another, it's another Australian RPG by, um, Wade Dyer. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's a Soulsborn version of his like usual system, which he originally made for Fragged Empire. Hence oh. like the naming theme. Anyway, I'm at the moment I'm doing freelance work for Frag Eternum. Oh, okay. He's going to do a Kickstarter soon. Keep an eye out. But uh, basically, the conceit is it's, a, it's an infinite city, more or less, but it's divided up into like specific districts by massive walls. Oh. And most of the setting focuses on one specific district. And it works out really well because you can just focus on like small areas and write about, you know, local politics. And so and with, whole, with those... NPC uh, beliefs and stuff and how they interact with each other. And it works those, out really well. Were those pressures things that were influencing your design as well? Like, was that kind of the reason why you chose to do this one, uh, uh, this one cylinder? Uh, not really, because I started making Hardwired Island before I started doing freelance for Wade. Right. Uh, sorry, yeah. but I meant I meant those those design concepts rather than necessarily specifically that game. But like all of those games that are set in one city have those shared themes of we're going to do a 
we're going to be looking specifically at the dynamics of this place. So how much does, I guess, how much does the dynamics of community play into hardware? A fair amount. Like I I kind of just like setting games in small areas in general. Like um, the last time we talked was about Breakfast Cult and Breakfast Cult is just inside a school. That's a good point, actually. Yeah. It's just in, in a school on an island. And also then that was partly based on the video game series Danganronpa, which is about being locked in a school and murdering people. You know, the age-old tradition. Very good. Yes. Anyway, I, I just ha- like having a nice, tight setting to work in. Yeah, I, I find finite space is hmm. both both like conceptually and also like literally is an interesting and engaging limiter. Yeah, I like um, we do have some stuff written for like Earth in general and some of the other space stations, mm-hmm. but mostly in terms of how they affect Grand Cross. That makes sense. And yeah. so, I guess, are you able to share a little bit of the like setting, history, and cultural dynamics of Grand Cross? What what is Grand Cross, and what makes it unique as a community? I guess, or as a, right. as, a as a place. So the history of the setting. Um, do you remember in, I think, 1996 or so when we had, like, two asteroid movies in the same year? Oh, yes, when Deep Impact and uh, Armageddon came out okay, at, like, the same time. We also had an actual asteroid. At the same time as those movies? Not, like, the exact same time, but, you know. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah. in 1996, there was an event called The Impact, uh, an asteroid hit the earth, you know, that kind of stuff. It did a whole bunch of environmental damage. Mm -hmm. Um, Mostly that's an excuse to have a bunch of different things happen that lead up to the distant future of 2020. So um, (laughs) basically everyone gets really interested in space exploration. So, you know, maybe we can settle other worlds and not immediately die if we get hit by another one of these things, you know? So everyone invests, everyone invests in that. Everyone, um, some countries pass laws that make it a bit easier to do that stuff. Like um, part of the joke with the setting is that the reason we're in space is that a lot of countries pass laws that made um, tech a little less dominated by like mediocre white guys. Interesting. Interesting. So, That's yeah, a cool then, idea, actually. Then, then they're in space now because not we don't have as many useless startup people reinventing things their mum did for them. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. So rather than having, when you started off saying a bunch of countries pass law to make it easier, I'm like, oh, okay, so like a bunch of tax incentives to. Yeah, um, I think we we. Left, but in, but okay. instead, what you mean is they passed laws making it so that it was not, so that it was easier for people to actually develop the skills to transition into those fields. Yeah, and it depends on the country. It depends on the country too. We left it intentionally vague because I think um. If we did get into the details, we would be make, like posting our opinion, opinions on like economics and social theory and that kind of stuff. And that's not really something I feel like should be going into Look fair that enough. deeply, at least in a tabletop game. Like I, I can't say that we shouldn't go into it at all because like half the game is about going into that. But yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. This specific instance is a bit you know, unrelated. Also, yeah. leaving it vague and making it the GM's problem is just like, way, way easier to write. And so people got, move into space and they start building these habitats. And then yeah, um, what kind yeah. of people live in, uh, in Grand Cross? 
So Grand Cross was originally like a joint project between a lot of uh, different countries. Like this is spearheaded by the UN, more or less. Uh, mm-hmm. Most countries did like a lottery of some kind to figure out who would go there. So oh, at first it would be like, you know, workers and researchers, their families, that kind of thing. Um, sometimes people could buy their way in. Sometimes like there would be lotteries, depends on the country. But the point is supposed to be that like just Grand Cross has a whole bunch of people from all over the world on it. And a lot of them are just regular folks. Like they didn't really pay their way here. They just said, hey, I'd like to go to space. And then they won a lottery and now they're in space. Cool. Or they were born to somebody who won that lottery. Yeah. So what kind of uh, challenges uh, did you envision when you, or, or did you run into when trying to make the setting feel as uh, diverse and representative as you are describing it at the moment? Um, well, that's something we're still working on, kind of, but it's not super hard. Like, you just find some other voices and be like, hey, you want some money to write some stuff for me? And then they say yes, and the problem's solved. Tell, tell us what your culture would look like in, in space. Uh, yeah, more or less. I mean, it's obviously a little bit more complicated than that, but, you know, I just uh, go ask people what they think. I pay them for their time. Of course. That kind of stuff. Uh, we're still... Part, we haven't done like a, a lot of it yet just because part of the Kickstarter money is supposed to be for, for consultants and sensitivity, sensitivity readers and like other writers. Yeah. Cultural consultants and things like that. Yeah. Um, what are some of your plans with that? Like what are some of, obviously it's Im- impossible to, it, it's impossible within the constraints of indie RPG publishing to include representation of uh, everything in there but obviously you want to try and represent as much as possible what are some of the cultural stuff that you are aiming to include oh man you're starting to make this sound like i'm a person who's organized and has plans and doesn't (laughs) mean it (laughs) fair enough what what is what is your what what are what are your what is your dream then i suppose for this what 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 is the what is the guiding star well i mean Basically, I don't really have a checklist of places that we we should cover, but what I want to do is just when it funds, we'll sit down and we'll work out how many different writers and so on we can recruit and then just try to recruit from as many different places as possible. I would like to get some people from places that are generally not represented that often mm-hmm. in role-playing games. Like, I mean... I, I could hire someone to write about what London would be like in space, but I think we've all fucking heard that one a million times. Yeah, every, everyone knows what British people will do when they go to space. They'll do the same thing they go when they go anywhere. Yeah. Same, like, same thing with the United States. Cool. I, I, know <laughs> that, I know that that is an aspect of Eclipsos, which we talked about as, uh, earlier in the interview, um, yeah. very briefly. That's an aspect of Eclipsos that I like, is that, like, you turn every every corner in that game and you find a new... Um, cultural um, subset, like the fact that one of the most famous um, space admirals uh, in the setting is an Indonesian man who abandoned his post when his commanding officers were like, we need you to stop these spaceships from getting off Earth because they could have bad people in it. And he was like, 
that's dumb. I'm going to save all these people instead because you're idiots. Yeah, Eclipse Face has a, has a lot of stuff like that. And I think it's really good because the way they write it, well, for a start, they recognize that you would have a lot of different people in space. Mm-hmm. But then they've sat, they tried to work out like how that would actually happen and try to write it in a way that makes sense and doesn't feel like they just wrote it for the sake of writing that. Like, um, I know the stuff they wrote about the history of Martian terraforming has a lot of interesting stuff about like the people who are in charge of the terraforming and where they're from and where the people... A lot of, a lot of early workers on the Martian terraforming project were pulled from former French uh, African countries, so like Tunisia and things like that. Uh, yeah, I believe so. And there's also um, one of the, I don't know if it really has sample characters, but like one of the viewpoint characters in all of the fluff stuff is originally like a Korean guy, I believe. Mm. There's also a guy, uh, one of the Martian point of view characters, I think is called Jack Carter. Yeah, that's the guy I was, that's the guy I was actually about to. Yeah. To, yeah I mean, funny, funny name. And also there's a bit in one of the stories that Jack Carter is the point of view character for. He talks about um, Vegemite. <laughs> Briefly mentions Vegemite. Yeah, and also um, a few of the polities in that setting, like the Jovian, the Jovians, and I think the Lunar Lagrange Alliance, they have histories and cultures that are like based around their old Earth cultures and how they feel about them and how that colors their perception of the rest of the system. Yeah, indeed. Strong, uh, strong imperialist representation in those communities. Oh yeah, the and, su- and subsequently, both the both the uh, Lunar Lagrange Alliance and the Jovian um, Republic are both incredibly conservative. Yeah, the, the Jovians especially. Mm-hmm. But, uh, one one thing I like about them is that they renamed a lot of Jupiter's moons, and one of them they just like renamed Pinochet. And a lot of people that I know were like, that's a little bit on the nose, isn't it? But honestly, like I'm starting to come around to the idea that saying the quiet part out loud is very funny. So I guess coming on from coming, flowing on from that is how talking about eclipse phase, there's a lot of places in eclipse phase that are more oppressive um, than others and then what we would normally want in our uh, escapist fantasy mm-hmm. um you've mentioned that your game is cyberpunk yeah. what what are the punk aspects of that what are what are people uh rebelling against or or acting in defiance of or what are they rejecting or embracing in order to I guess, embody that for you. Yeah. Bit of water. All right. So uh, basically the main villain in the setting is a group of corporations called the Offworld Cartel. And also like, you know, saying the quiet part out loud. Very funny. But the Offworld Cartel basically wants to control the station because they've recognized that it is more or less the launching point for like future missions to Mars and possibly beyond. So if they can control it, they can more or less control like the future of space exploration. If you control Grand Central's uh, station, you control the world. Yeah, basically. It's it's like taking over a city by just being the guy who operates the train network. Mm-hmm. That that was a really bad analogy, actually. But maybe it was good? I don't know. Let's I don't know. It. I think that's a pretty good analogy. But let, let, let's set it aside. <laughs> uh, anyway, basically, 
they've started to spread their influence throughout the city. Uh, throughout the city. Um, some of the politicians are more or less working for them. Can't, there's not really a real-life analogy I could make for this scenario. But, no, not at all. Definitely uh, not in Australia. <laughs> basically, you're regular people who are either trying to, like, in general, just change how things are going on the station through, like, activism or, like, journalism or, like, whatever is your poison, just, like, general high-level stuff, or, like, specifically doing things like protecting your community from let's say, like, criminal gangs who are also probably bankrolled by the corporations. I'm dealing with, like, rogue robot experiments that they just left lying around, that kind of stuff. So is that the play loop? Is the play loop for the game you are people that actively stand in opposition or is the play loop more about community exploration and community problem solving? Or is it both or is it a different thing altogether? Uh, It's a bit of both. It depends what you want to do. Um, We've written it so the players can go on like very specific missions that can be active resistance or like organizing a community against like a specific threat, like, you know, smaller stuff, mm-hmm. but they have like an overall long-term goal of affecting change in Green Cross. Right. So they're all people With, that are actively, you're, you're, you're generally playing people that are actively interested in their community is yeah. play can see. Right. And you're supposed to like, you, you're supposed to take an interest in your community. So you're supposed to like have NPC friends and that kind of stuff. You're not just, uh, I think a lot of cyberpunk games have this thing going where the characters are basically just committing crimes and just, and doing missions to increase their own personal wealth. Mm-hmm. And the end goal is more or less to become like a very powerful person within the existing system. Yeah. If there is even an end goal, like lots of like, I mean, you look at, Shadowrun. Shadowrun doesn't have an end goal. The goal it is it's like D and D. The goal is to keep playing it and to forever and ever and ever. Yeah, and then you know, you just get more money and more power. Yeah. Whereas things like games like Red Markets, for example, where you which is an economic horror game, but there are elements of cyberpunk in there. Like the whole point of that game is that being a character, being, if you were actually one of the characters in this setting, doing the, the game conceit stuff fucking sucks. If you're an actual person. And the whole point of that game is to get to a point where your character doesn't have to play anymore. Like the whole point is to try and retire. Whereas in your game, it sounds more like the whole point is to make this community not shit. Yeah. I mean, or to keep the community from falling into being shit, I suppose. Yeah, like, you can't really retire in Grant Kenya because, you know, like, where are you going to go? I mean, it's where you live. It's not, yeah, you're not trying to escape out of it. It, it. Rather than escaping from your community, it's turning your community into... I mean, and your only other option is to go back to Earth, which is, I mean, it's different because it's a planet, but it's basically the same place as we're right in it. It's Too just, much sky. Different logos on the corporate branding. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I suppose... We, how are we looking for for time? Like I, I, I got all there. Oh, well, I was just checking what the... Because I'm envisioning the, a length of the interview. Um, so, I guess my next question is, what are... Tell me three things that... Uh, stand out to you that we haven't already mentioned as being uh, captivating to, to pretend to the people that you want to be interested in the, in the game. What are three things about the setting that you think will pull people in that we haven't already talked about? Hmm. Well, let's see. We've got, 
we've written a bunch of stuff about you know you can be an android if you want nice good yeah. that's the thing we hadn't touched on and you definitely need to mention that you can play as non-humans yeah non-human peoples i'm here for it what else all right um Cybernetics might kind of count, I guess. I, I, I was going to tie it, lump it in with the Android thing, to be honest. But we wrote out a bunch of stuff about cybernetics and how they work, like, economically and just in, like, society, societally, not just... Um, there's a, a lot of cyberpunk games that want to examine, like, identity and how that intersects with cybernetics and that kind of thing. But then they just reduce it to, hey, if you get cybernetics, you've, like, sold your, sold your body. And it's really weird. Yeah, it's very disrespectful of people with disabilities or people that have been um, with dysphoria and things like that to say, I mean, like Shadowrun, if you if you have cybernetics, you, you're inhuman. Yeah, and and so you can't use magic anymore or, you know, or um, there's a bunch of games that that play in that space and it's like wow this is fucking gross yeah and then like a lot of people just i think they would just want to be a sick as hell robot honestly like i don't see what the problem is here yeah um, and i mean I was thinking off was a hmm. cyberpunk 2020 the video game uh there is a polygon article oh 2077 you mean 2077 sorry mm-hmm. sorry i got 20 no 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 that's fine I mean, the original Cyberpunk game was, yeah, indeed, you're, you're right, but yeah, the, the video right. game is 2077. Even more distant future of 2077. The far off, futury future. But basically, there's a Polygon article talking to one of the creators, and he's describing how they have a scene where, like, basically you encounter a nude lady, and then she's got, like, she's augmented, and apparently it's supposed to be, like, a really heavy scene or something, and then they're just talking about how she's profane or some weird shit and then like the human body is sacred and it's like what the fuck are you talking about mate it's a very weird angle for uh that game to take um and 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 very much with that game so cyberpunk 77 whenever whenever there's new news about cyberpunk 77 it makes everyone that enjoys cyberpunk be like oh this is gonna be shit <laughs> <laughs> it's like whenever news about the Ghost in the Shell movie came out, like it was just like, "Wow, this is this is very much not cyberpunk. It is just aesthetically cyberpunk. It's 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 cool, cool, yeah, it, it cool looks Gundam. Very, it looks very nice, but it's like a very standard cyberpunk as an aesthetic thing. Yeah, indeed. I guess like a, a lot of a lot of works do that. To be honest, like one of the things we've been, we've been trying to avoid is just having a futurist setting where you can have a robot arm and saying, Hey, it's we're cyberpunk now. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing that's, that's, I, I'm glad that you have thought about why it is cyberpunk and what makes it like, do you know what, do you know what else is sometimes called cyberpunk? What? Ready player one. That is not that. What? How? Because it's in a dystopian sci-fi future. Mm, okay. Well, I mean, the parts that aren't in like a middle-aged man's fantasy are in a, a dystopian future. It's so, oh, I haven't watched that movie. I'm so glad I have not. I have no interest in reading the book either. Um. Yeah. Do you really miss the '80s? No. Or then you're not. <laughs> I wasn't out. even alive in the '80s. Or then you're not missing out. It's fine. Just <laughs> good. Yeah. I'm glad. Um. Wow. Um. Is there is there a third thing that yeah, you think uh, would bring people in? Yeah, te- 
technically we've cheated a bit by jumping from androids to cybernetics to just cyberpunk in general. Mm-hmm. And that is one to two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. Well, one other thing we've got in the game is there's, a, uh, there's another kind of enemy called the Dreamers, and they are fun to write. It's basically, okay. um, have you watched Bubblegum Crisis? Yes. Okay. Did you like Boomers? Yeah, I don't. I don't what, hate what boomers. If, what if they were weird? What if boom? How do you make boomers even weirder? Okay, so, uh, basically, the concept behind the dreamers is they were originally androids, sort of created for space exploration. Like they'd go to other worlds and terraform them and prepare them for, for human settlement, that kind of stuff. Like Bracewell probes. Yeah, but the offworld cartel wanted androids, but they didn't want androids that would say, "Hey, can I have like pay?" They wanted slaves. Basically, they, they, they wanted robots that could think, but not think like that. Yep. They wanted robots that, that they didn't have to control every second, but they, they didn't want them to... Of, um, they wanted them to love their bondage. Yeah. They got a bunch of weird, like, AI research. They got some, you know, brain scans of Earth creatures, some illegal, like, uplift research, you know, very, very normal stuff. Mm-hmm. And the goal was to create a robot that could think, but it didn't have a human mindset. Right. Like, not even close. Like, there is, like, a vast spectrum of things that you could call human in terms of, like, force. And then this is just, like, way off in the fucking distance. So they're weird. <laughs> yeah, they're, you can't really communicate with them at all. Interesting. Um, and so are they, could, are, they, are they villainous? Um, sort of. Basically what happened is they discovered it's very hard to give orders to something that you can barely communicate with. Mm-hmm. So, but for some reason they tried to use them for like covert missions on Grand Cross as well. Like, you know, if it works out for space exploration, why not use these guys everywhere? Wow. Okay. It's a very, it's a very corporate thing to think. Anyway, they basically just wandered off. It did not work out. They went rogue. Um, so that- you've got a few dreamers lurking in the, in the cylinder. Yeah. So, if you want a more straightforward, you know, fighting monsters thing, you can go fight these guys. Yeah, you can do bubble bomb, bubble gum crisis. Um, yeah, more or less. Although, um, one of the sample ones we've got, um, Freya wrote this one for me, mm-hmm. based on I, I said I wanted a beholder, basically. <laughs> cool. So it's originally meant to be like an asteroid mining robot. It's given itself like technology that lets it hover. No one really knows how it works. These guys are weird. And probably very dangerous. Um, it's obsessed with like the number pi. And okay. That. And when it sees thing, when it sees amounts of things that are not pi, it gets mad. Like, do you know how many limbs a person has? It has four. What the fuck kind of number is a four? I see. So it tries to problem. fix that. It tries to separate out the limbs. Also, it has like a bunch of arms on its head for like mining tools and that kind of thing. This is where the beholder's eye rays come in. Mm, yeah. Okay. But wild. wild the amount of those things on its head is larger than pi. And also it can't self-terminate, so it's very angry right now. I can believe it. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's very interesting. I can't wait to talk, about, uh, talk to Freya about how, um, how she has attempted to reflect some of these things mechanically. Yeah, so basically uh, when writing this, what I've been going for is um, Bubblegum Crisis, but like by way of eclipse phase, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Interesting. So I guess for now, um, we, 
why don't you tell us where we can find more from you and where we can look for uh for more information about Hardwired Island. Obviously, you're on Kickstarter, and we have a link to that down below. But where else can people find you if they want to find more of your work? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Etten64, like E-T-T-I-N. Almost the sex number. Yeah. <laughs>